Good morning. My name is Ryan. Nice to be with you. Uh, if you were or were not with us last week, we started a new series in the book of Hosea. <clears throat> so if you will turn, if you brought your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, I believe it's page 751 there. I think so. So um, before I read this, just a reminder, Hosea is split up into two parts. There's chapters 1 to 3, and then there's chapters 4 to the end of the book. And so last week and this week, we're taking on that first part. And last week, we looked at chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 2 and and 3 as much as we can. Excuse me. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Hosea, chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 2 here on to chapter 3 to verse 5. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said I will go after my lovers. Who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, and her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a day of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have no mercy or I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. Chapter three, verse one. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God and David, their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in Hosea. And we pray now that as we look at it and as we we read it, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes and our ears. That we would be able to see and hear things otherwise we could not. We pray that you would do a miracle in our life. And by miracle that you would soften our hardened hearts. Or that you would make them ready to receive your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we saw how to read Hosea. We saw how Hosea is uh, sort of this living metaphor where God calls the prophet Hosea to go and to take an adulterous uh, wife, Gomer, to be his wife. And in this living metaphor, we, we said that we play the role of Gomer and, and Hosea plays the role of God. Um, and we said that what God wants more than anything from us is to desire no one but him, that there is this righteous jealousy there, uh, that would be with any spouse, right? If, 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 if a faithful spouse, uh, you know, if, if a third party came into the room that wasn't supposed to be there, that is the way God feels towards Israel at this point because of their unfaithfulness and Hosea and Gomer are living that out. And so the question now becomes, what will God do in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness? And then what should Israel do in response? And those are our two questions, not just for the text, but also for us this morning as well. What should we do? Like what, what? What will God do in response to us and our unfaithfulness as Gomer, as Israel? But what should be our response to his, to that question as well? So to get at that, let's look at these two questions or two points there on your bulletin, in your bulletin. Uh, The case against Gomer or the case against Israel, we'll look at in verses 2 to 13. And then we'll look at the picture of extravagant extravagant grace towards Gomer, towards Israel um, in the rest of that chapter. So let's look at that first one, the case against Israel, the case against Gomer. What has Gomer done? And that might be something that you left last week 
um, kind of asking yourself, what, what's the big deal here, right? I get the worship of other gods, but what specifically has she done? And it's here that as we begin uh, to, to hear the case against her, we traffic, and by we, I, I'm specifically talking to Reformed people, uh, New Testament people would also be another phrase, for, not just for Reformed people, for, but just for what I'm meaning, in the legality of our sin. So we traffic in Paul's language of uh, transgression and guilt, Right, you're either guilty or you're innocent. And what Hosea is really doing is it's not trafficking in that language as, as much as it is showing you a picture of how God truly feels about you and His heartbreak, as it were, as a result of your unfaithfulness. Okay, and so what Gomer has done, and what, what we're about to see, is not so much the things that that, that you know, we're not going to lay out so much the things that she has done. But where those things have led her and where they have led her is to a place of not knowing her spouse, not knowing the God who has called her out of Egypt to be their God and for them to be his people. And it's a, it's a no that is not just a, a, like I know things about somebody, right? Like I, I know the capital of Illinois or, or I know, I don't know what color... My eye, the, my color, the color of the eyes of my wife are, you know, things about them. It's a knowing that is affectionate. It is an intimate knowing. And we see this first and foremost in chapter four of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve are booted from the garden. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. See, Adam didn't just know things about Eve, like her height and weight or whatever. He knew her in a way that nobody else knew her. He knew her intimately and affectionately. And that is the language that God uses for Israel, his people. It's the language that he uses for you as well. This is what he wants from us. And so as we enter into this text to see what, what Gomer has done, what Israel has done, it is that she has, she has found herself to be in a place where she no longer knows who God is. And what this looks like is it looks like pagan worship. It looks like recognizing um, or not recognizing nor giving thanks to God for the good things that he gives his people. It looks like t- turning around and giving thanks to false gods for what Yahweh, the one true God, has given them. It looks like a marriage where one spouse doesn't even think of the other anymore. He or she is not even on their mind. That's what's in view as we start chapter 2. We often, again, want to draw specifics about what Israel has done for various reasons. But the sin, the heartbreak here, the trial, if you will, is where those things have led her. And it has led her to a place where she no longer knows God and knows him intimately the way that he has called her to know him and vice versa. Okay, so verse two, plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband that she put away her horn from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. The word plead here is understood as a plead my cause. For God will not go back on his own marriage vows to Israel. Therefore, he is contending with the children of Israel, so to speak, uh, the kids of uh, his own children in this metaphor, to go speak sense into your mother. 
Therefore, the language, she is not my wife and she is not my husband. It is rhetorical. She is not behaving as such. Therefore, this, the, the wedding vows, the, the, the commitment, the promise is broken. And therefore, we are functionally acting as though we are not married or you are. That's, that's the sense here. By verses 5 to 8, we see how Israel's practices have shaped her, for she no longer knows where her good good gifts come from. And we'll get into this later on in the series, but there's a sense, too, where the, the, the living metaphor of the family as God speaks to the children shifts a little bit. There's, uh, there's some coded language here in, um, in prophetical books where mother oftentimes uh, speaks to the capital place of that area. And so this would be Samaria, which means that, that in a sense, this, this accusation is now being pointed at the leadership of Israel in the northern kingdom, as we stated last week. And we'll unpack that later on. I just wanted to highlight that because by, verse five, by verses 5 and 8, we see how Israel, Israel's practices have shaped her for she no longer knows where her good gifts come from. The middle of verse 5 says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool, my flax, oil, and drink. And then by verse 8, she did not know that it was I who gave her these things, which they, Israel, used for Baal. In other words, Israel has received or taken God's good gifts, and instead of returning thanks, they thanked another And then they use them for more devotion and worship to another God. It is because they no longer know the Lord their God that they no longer attribute blessing to him. And again, let me be clear. It is not that they have forgotten the stories of their God. They know things about him. It's that they are no longer devoted to him. They are no longer seeking him. They are seeking the welfare that is provided by partnering with other nations in seeking their armies to protect and save them. They are partnering with their own wealth and looking to that to be the place of security for them. These are the places where they are going. And it is all um, a result of them not knowing God as he has called them to know them. So in verse 9 to 13, God speaks then of what? Removing those blessings. If you look there, therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. <clears throat> and I will take away my wool, my flax, etc. And I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moon, Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts as well. In other words, God will take back all of these blessings. He will expose Israel for who she is. And in doing so, he will break the cycle of her worship of the Baals by proving them to be powerless. And he's doing all this because by the time we get to verse 13, Israel has what? Burned offerings to the Baals and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and what? Forgot me, declares the Lord. I said in the earlier service, it's almost like, like God seems to be this sort of insecure teenager all of a sudden. Forgot me? You're the God of the universe. You created all of this. What do you mean you forgot me? And you're worried about that? Like us? Or the way that we're responding? And, and the answer is yes. By the time we get to verse 13, the picture is one of Gomer, of Israel, of, of God's bride. Sitting before the mirror, as it were, uh, and, and as if this were like uh, getting ready for a big date. 
putting on the makeup, putting on the jewelry, thinking, how should I wear my hair? Thinking, what does he like? Should I wear this dress with those, this, uh, dress with those shoes or this blouse with those heels, etc., etc.? right? Her mind is captured by her other lovers. Nowhere is her day-to-day thoughts, uh, is she thinking of her first love, her faithful husband, Yahweh. She has forgotten him. She no longer knows him. And this is the case against her. This is the problem. This is where and why judgment will ultimately come in to bear in the northern kingdom. But before we get to all that, this is us too. We, again, let's remember who we are in the story. We're not Hosea. We're, We're Gomer. We're looking before the mirror, getting ourselves ready and thinking only of our other lovers and not our faithful spouse, according to Hosea. Because, see, we know this, too. If the spirit of God does not come into our lives and doesn't give us new hearts, you and I, we don't know the Lord. It is not our education, it is not our place in this, in this, in this country, in this world, our status that has given us uh, the ability to know God. We all believe that. We only know the Lord because his spirit has what? Opened our eyes to see him. That he has made right to his promise to give us a new heart. That is who we are. The point is to see in the midst of all of this for this to happen, that someone actually has to die for our hearts, for Gomer's heart. And this, only by this death are we not only shown mercy, but we are actually brought back into God's family. But because we forget the Lord in, in, in the ways that we do, we attribute success to other things than God as well. And I want to continue to sort of draw this parallel here of how we are Gomer in this case. Like you may not worship the Baals, but you attribute blessing and success to other things. I attribute blessing and success to other things. For example, how many times have I forgotten the Lord and the success that I have experienced in my life and attributed it to what? My hard work. I earned that, I like to say. I did that. Instead of thanking God for giving me the ability to work, a brain to think, the benefits of growing up when I did so that the success that I had might be possible. Right? It, is, it is a recognition of that. How else do I attribute success to other things? How many times have I attributed blessing to having the right leaders or parties in office? How many times have I thought, oh, if we could just get a few more justices on the court... Then we will live in a land flowing of milk and honey. And none of that is wrong. But I can attribute success and blessing to those things, forgetting the Lord God himself, that he is the author of all that is good, that he reigns over all of these things. So we do the same thing. We forget the Lord in these ways. We too attribute success to something other than God in these ways. It might not be Baal, but it can certainly be our money. It can certainly be the way we think about government. It can be the way we think about pleasure. All of these things, which are major themes throughout the book of Hosea. 
Jim Chester says it this way. He says, we too can attribute blessing to or look for hope in the market or the government or our own hard work without recognizing that these are simply some of the means that God uses to bless us. We can sing God's praise on a Sunday and then be functional atheists throughout the week, living as though God has no impact on our lives. In this way, we function as though he doesn't exist. Our problem is the same as Israel's. I'm not trying to whitewash that this morning or sanitize it for us. God's case against them is the same against us. We don't know him. We don't want to know him. Our hearts will go after anything. So God has to fix us. He has to give us a new heart if we have any hope at all, which is exactly the thing that he is promising to do as we turn to the second point, the picture of extravagant grace. But this is the case against Israel. They no longer know the Lord as they should or as they have promised into the Lord as the covenant relationship of being husband and spouse requires. And this has brought heartbreak to the faithful husband to God himself. Now let's look at this picture of extravagant grace. What do we expect God to do in the rest of this chapter uh, and on in the verse, all on in the chapter three, beginning in verse 14, what do we expect him to do? We have a spouse here who has been cheated on over and over. At the end of verse 13, Israel is dressing for and getting butterflies in her stomach over thinking about her other, other lovers. Thinking about the big date that night that she's going to have. And she has forgotten her faithful spouse. She does not think about him uh, on a day-to-day basis. What do we expect God to do next? And I want you to keep in mind, this is the angry God of the Old Testament. Okay? So what do, we, what, do we, what do we expect him to do? Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a day of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Let me read you Eugene Peterson's translation of this, of verse 14 and 15. And now, here's what I'm going to do, says the Lord. I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back out into the wilderness where we had our first date, and I'll court her there. I'll give her bouquets of roses. I'll turn Heartbreak Valley into acres of hope. She'll respond like she did as a young girl those days when she was fresh out of Egypt. Where we might expect divorce papers, I'm through with you, Where we would expect anger and rage, we get, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to speak not angrily, but tenderly to you. Who does this? Who does this? This is a picture of extravagant grace, friends. Side note, 
After verse 14 and 15, and this is one of many places in the Bible where we can say this, you need to put a little asterisk to remind yourself that after verses 14 and 15, no one can ever say God is not fair. So what is God doing? He's saying we're going to start over. And I'm going to take you back to where this all started, to the wilderness. Now, what happened in the wilderness? Why the wilderness? The wilderness is where Israel had nothing and was given everything from the Lord's hand. This was after God had freed his people from Egypt, if you recall, and constituted them as a nation at Sinai. But for 40 years, they wandered in the desert where God had to get Egypt out of his people. The wilderness was the place they learned to trust God and to rely on him. He sent them food from the sky and water from a rock. Israel had nothing and it was wonderful because they had the Lord their God. And God wants to take them back there, metaphorically speaking, so they will know him again in that way. So they won't mistake where their bread, where their water, where their wool, flax, oil, anything comes from. They will know him. This is why the judgment of Israel, of Gomer, as we just got done reading, is one where God will strip them of everything. It's not because he doesn't want his people to have nice things. It's because those nice things have been mistaken for proof that they don't need him anymore. Israel's prosperity has made it hard to depend on the Lord as he has called them to do so. What a warning for us today. Would God in his mercy strip us as it were and lead us to the wilderness at times, which does imply suffering for the purpose of making sure that we don't forget him, but instead that we would what know him more. But that's not what this is about. That's not the focus here. The focus is on what God is doing. The faithful spouse between verses 14 to 23, we read the phrase, I will 14 times. Don't miss it. Kids, circle it. Count all 14. I will allure her. I will give her vineyards. I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, which implies a new heart. I will make for them a a covenant, a new promise. I will abolish the bow and war and make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And it just continues. Extravagant grace. Now, this is not about us as much as we want to make it about us. It is about who God is and what he is like and what he is doing and what he is going to do for his people, for his spouse. This is the face of extravagant grace. And the rest of this chapter is full of it. For example, the Valley of Acre in verse 15 What we see is that in a lot of this blessing and curse language is that actually the curse that our sin or our unfaithfulness has caused, that curse will be reversed. What happened in the Valley of Acre? That was Joshua 7. You might remember that from our study in Joshua. This was right after Israel took Jericho. 
trusting that the Lord would fight for them. And what was the one command that he gave them? He said, do not go in there and pillage and plunder or take anything of theirs for yourself, for it all belongs to the Lord. It will be a burnt offering to me. And so they go and they take Jericho and they're all like, yes. And then there's Ai down the road. Let's go get Ai because the Lord will fight for us. Like they're learning covenantal faithfulness in that way. Go check the tapes. Um, (laughs) Anyways, I thought that was funny. They go to fight Ai. And what happens? They get overtaken. And now they're like, what's going on? And what what does God say to Joshua? Beginning of chapter 8. There's sin in the land. Like you've already broken the, already broken the covenant. There's sin in the land. What is it? Somebody has taken. Somebody has stolen. And what do they do? They go throughout the camp and they find who it was. And who was it? It's Achan. And is it Achan who just dies? Who receives God's wrath in that moment? No. It's his family. It, it, right? It's, it's, it's those who didn't even know that it was there. It is a horrible, horrible scene or stain on Israel's history. It is a hard moment, uh, a difficult text to look at, to understand the holiness of God and what he demands. But there's mercy there as well. There's mercy there as well. Because right now what he's saying is that valley, which is also known as trouble, will be turned into a door of hope. What else? We will be invited to know God affectionately. God's not just going to reverse the curse, if you will, and show us mercy. He's going to invite us to know him affectionately. Look at verse 16 and 17. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal or master. See, there's a a play on words here that the word Baal means master. It's one of its definitions. And so what what, what God is saying here is, is that you will not look at me or refer to me as the boss. Right. As as the, the, the slave driver, if you will, as the one who is sort of other and, and, and maybe the, the angry God. Whatever you think of him, you will actually be invited to call me husband. Which is an invitation to know the Lord God affectionately and intimately. Again, this is not Paul's legal language, which is important. This is the heart of your God speaking tenderly to you and what he wants from you. It's relational. You will be able to call him husband, which means you will know him and have all the rights of a spouse in that way. Extravagant grace at its core, according to Hosea, aims to reverse the heartbreak, our sin and unfaithfulness. This calls the Lord that has led to a place of us not knowing him and somehow replaces it with blessing and an invitation to call God husband. We go from whoredom to being betrothed by God for what purpose? And please look at this, verse 20 at the end. What is the purpose? So that you will know the Lord. There it is again. That's what he wants from you. That's what he wants from us. This is extravagant grace. This is what God will do. So how should we respond? What should be our response to this? And what I would suggest is that our response to this should be the same and is the same that Israel's response should be. 
And that is one of repentance, which is what we mentioned last week, but not just repentance for repentance sake for, you know, I need to stop doing bad things or I need to put away this behavior. It is repenting unto something. And what God desires for his people is that you would repent to what? Unto knowing him. That's how he is going to reverse all of this. That's how he is going to bring about restoration in our lives. It is an invitation to repent, to know God affectionately and to know him intimately as he has called you to know him. Chapter three, then, is the enactment of all of this for the Gomer Hosea living metaphor. Hosea then is to, is to go. It says, go again and to love a woman who is in the midst of sleeping with another man at this very moment. Don't miss this. She is in bed with a friend, literally. This is the place that Hosea is to go and find her and get her. Which is a picture of our relationship to God. When Jesus dies on the cross and Paul tells us at the right time he died for us. He died for us while we were in bed, metaphorically speaking, with other treasures of our heart. He went to the cross in that moment. You see the picture. And so Gomer goes, or excuse me, Hosea goes, he goes and he buys her back for not much, 15 shekels and some barley. But it, 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 was, it didn't matter how much it cost, right? And so we get to this point in the story, what's that going to look like? Go, Gomer's now moving into Hosea. What's that going to look like? <laughs> what are those conversations going to be like? Um, we think this is going to be all fun and games. No, there's going to be some really, really hard conversations. There's going to be some really tough periods that will feel like the wilderness for her. But that's what repentance often feels like sometimes, doesn't it? It feels like the wilderness. At the same time, Gomer's repentance to Hosea, as it were, ours to the Lord, is the place that becomes an eternal wellspring of joy as well. To know Hosea as her faithful husband, Gomer, that, that, that is the only way for her to be restored to who she is supposed to be. The same is true for us, for God. Our wellspring of joy comes from no other place, as we'll see here in a second, than from knowing him. In other words, to continue with the metaphor, and also as an illustration, it is no good for Gomer to move in with Hosea and her heart never changed towards him. All right, so repentance, we can repent in that way. We can stop behavior and our heart doesn't change, which is why the repentance that God calls us to is repentance unto knowing him. He wants repentance from us unto knowing him, which means trusting that no matter what we've done, no matter how ugly our hearts are, no matter what we confess to him, his promises to love, redeem and restore us, which is the pattern of redemption, according to one commentator, never change. And so let's get practical about this briefly. I'm already running late on time. What does this look like to repent unto Jesus and know him intimately in those ways? And let's look at let's look at. The way we think about politics and the way we think about money and the way we think about pleasure, which are three major themes in this book. We repent of our faith in government as our heart's true hope to give us peace and security, not in and of itself. Like I don't need to say to myself, don't trust, don't put all of your trust in these officials. 
Instead, we promise to know Jesus as our what? True source of hope and peace. All right, government is great. Go vote. Get involved in local politics. It's wonderful. Maybe. Just don't forget who is sitting on the throne. Do not forget who is ruling all things, who is our ultimate hope and only answer for true peace. And when we repent of our idolatry of those things and we move into and unto knowing God to replace those things, that's what he wants. It's a reordering of our heart's desires. What about our wealth or our money? Like we repent of those things, but not because it's good to repent of money or wealth at times, even by giving some of it away. You can give this stuff away and your heart can never change. Money and wealth give us all a false sense of security and value. Repentance of our money and wealth is a daily conversation with our faithful spouse, Jesus, that invites us to know him as our true provider. And in return, the place we truly find security and value. Do you see how that works? Again, Jesus doesn't want, just want us to give our money away for giving sake. That's not repentance unto knowing him. You might feel better because you gave your money away. But you are no closer to knowing him than Gomer. Knows Hosea. What about intimacy? The last one. If we think about things about pleasure, everything from pornography to drink, whatever it is that we go to. It is a good thing to stop looking to other things for false intimacy. That's a great thing. But Jesus wants our repentance to be unto knowing him, which means we repent of our lust by knowing him as the ultimate relationship where intimacy is found. All those other places are empty, dried up wells. The living water is with him. Your heart wants him. Repenting of those things is not white knuckling right throughout the week, trying to not go to that side or think about this person in that way or have that second drink. In some, in some senses, it's actually about knowing Jesus in the midst of that wilderness for you and knowing that he is your, your heart's true source of intimacy. That's what you really want. You don't want these other lovers. You think you do. And it's trusting and knowing him in that way. That's what this looks like. This is the grace that leads us then to the restoration that God promises to complete in you. It's his doing. Which just so happens to be the meaning of the word gomer. We didn't say this last week. You know what gomer means? It comes from the root word to bring to completion. That's who you are. And that's because of God's promise to you. He's going to restore you. This is what he wants for you. This is what he wants for all of us, which, our soul, which means our sole job in this marriage is repentance, repentance, repentance unto knowing Jesus, our faithful spouse, more and more and more. There's a saying, and I'll close here, that I heard from a friend recently. He says, you don't know someone until you have hurt them. And I'm finding that to be very true. You don't know someone in, until you hurt them. And what he meant by that, and to use myself as an example, if you hurt me, I can either avoid you Right? Or I can move closer to you. And there are definitely appropriate situations, just to be clear, where you should avoid somebody that hurts you. 
But the saying is still true. You, you don't really know the content of someone's character until you hurt them. When things are all great, right, when the tides are high, when everything's good, like it covers a lot of things. I would suggest the same is true for you this morning with Jesus. You do not know him until you see your hurt that you have caused him, but also see his response to that hurt. You also see his commitment to love you more. And where do we see God's commitment to loving us even more? In Jesus Christ, on his cross, where Jesus becomes that true valley of acre true valley of of trouble for us, of God's wrath poured out to him on the cross so that what? So that a door of hope would be offered to you for all eternity. To know him in the way that you were called to know him. That you will no longer call him master, but that you will be invited to call him husband. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible words to us in Hosea, which is a picture of your grace to us. We don't deserve this. If anything, this is not fair. (laughs) That you would continue to come after us in this way, despite our heart's longings for other things. And so we pray for that restoration. We pray that in the places that you've stripped us and called us to the wilderness where that hurts, but that's uncomfortable, that we would see it as your blessing as see it as, as, as your remedy to ensure not only your promises to us, but your promises that we will not forget you, that we will be your people, that we will know you intimately and affectionately. I, I don't know sometimes what that even is supposed to be like. And so I pray that you would, you would graciously show us. I'm too far distracted too many times with the luster of other things. You call me to yourself. You call me to be in love with what you have done for me, for us. I pray that you would make that more beautiful and believable to us in the days to follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.